Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from both famous and ordinary folks about turning points in their lives. What it was, what came before it, what came after it, and where they are now. And today we are joined by Bill Bachman, who the Washington Post profiled, and their profile started out like this. Bill Bachman had the perfect Washington career. He was a partner at Williams & Connolly, consistently ranked as the city's top law firm. Lunches came from the firm's beautiful attorney dining room. He had a closet full of suits with his name embroidered in the lapel. He specialized in antitrust cases, environmental crimes, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. His salary? Let's just say that life was comfortable. Bachman also had some nagging doubts. We'll get into those nagging doubts and what led Bill to leave this plush life to become, of all things, a Division Three college football coach. Yep, D3 college football. And he's thrilled about it, as he should be. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. You bet. Bill, before we get into the turning point, tell us about your early life, where you grew up, how it shaped you, your parents, and the impact on all of that uh, leading up to that turning point. Well, I grew up in New Jersey, and... Uh... My father was a judge, and he had graduated from Harvard Law School and was a state court judge in Middlesex County, and my mother was a school teacher. And so, um, you know, I grew up uh, around a teacher and somebody involved in the legal profession, and so when I uh, was thinking about what I wanted to do the rest of my life, I guess I I favored my mother's side, at least initially, and uh, I was an education major in college, a physical education major, and then uh, pursued... um, a career as a teacher and a coach, you know, initially uh, when I graduated from college. And what, tell me about that experience, what you liked about it, what led you to leave that experience after college? Um, I graduated in 1982 from Westchester University outside of Philadelphia, and my first coaching job was at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. I was there for two years, and then I was at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia for six years. Um, and I guess, um, and then I went to law school. So uh, with respect to uh, some of the frustrations I had when I was uh, at least initially uh, in that profession the first eight years was that uh, so many things that you do when you're teaching a coach and you're, you're being evaluated on things that are really beyond your control. A lot of your life or livelihood is in the hands of 18, 19, 20-year-olds and you know, there were periods of time there that, you know, that can become frustrating. You know, you lose control in, in some measure. Um, and so um, I went to law school um, probably without some sense that I was going to leave the coaching profession. I went to law school to kind of enhance my resume, so to speak, um, to make me more um, protected, I guess, if, to the extent I wanted to stay in coaching. To enhance my resume, there were some college football coaches at the time. This was back eighty nine, ninety, that had law degrees. I had gone to a small college, and I thought if I got a law degree, then I would maybe reassert some control over my life and, and remove some of it from the hands of the eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-olds. That, of course, was a fiction, you know. But but at least that was the thought process. Yeah, and it worked at least for a while. I mean, I, I went to UVA law school. And I think for very much the same reasons you did, a pretend backup plan that I really had no plans of pursuing. 
Um, and luckily for me, I didn't sit for the bar and I didn't. Um, but uh, it was because that wasn't a part of my life and my passion. What, so what happens next? You, you, you go to law school and you go to a, a, a fine law school. And the next thing you know, well, there goes the coaching and you're a lawyer. How did that happen? Was it a, was it a cog- cognitive choice? Did you figure I'll just do this for a little while, make some money, go back to coaching? Or the heck with coaching, enough's enough. Two things happened that were uh, were surprising. One is, um, um, if I can be, you know, let's, let's be perfectly honest. I got divorced and I had a young child, and I couldn't imagine myself. And I don't judge anybody who does this, but I would never imagine myself leaving my son behind and getting back on the kind of the gypsy lifestyle that is college coaching. You know, you can just have to look up anybody's resume. They've coached at fifteen colleges all over the country. I couldn't leave my son behind, and secondly. I got really good grades at Georgetown, better than I had gotten as an undergrad. And so all of a sudden, A, I didn't want to leave, and B, I had an opportunity to work in a law firm in Washington, D.C., given the grades that I had gotten at Georgetown. And so those two things almost conspired to put me on this treadmill that I never expected to be on. Um, and um, before you knew it, um, I was at Williamson. You know, I did a clerkship with a federal judge, a very prestigious clerkship, and then uh, ended up at Williamson Conley. And I was like, I was into it a couple of years, and you know, and my money, you know, I had lots of money, and I really and worked with wonderful people and had a great job. But it kind of, like I would say, snuck up on me. Right, it snuck up on you. And by the way, this is no disrespect to people who pursue law as a profession. It's all about what you love what you want, what's best for you, and what's best for your family. And very often in life, we men do this. I think women do it too. We go down a path. We find ourselves not happy. Some of us stay on it, and we end up dying miserable. And other of us get off the track and try something new. And it's not easy to get off the track. Talk about, if you can, uh, real shortly here, a couple of one nagging doubt you started to have. You only have about a minute here. When we come back, we'll really dig into the doubts and what led to that, that sudden a career change or not so sudden career change? That, that's a great question. I guess the thing that I could say in a, in a quick minute is that I came, I was doing fine at the law firm. I was doing fine and doing good work and representing the clients well and achieving and obviously got an opportunity to make partner. But I began to wonder whether or not, um, I don't know that God puts you on this earth to be great at everything, to be great at multiple things. And I began to wonder whether um, there was something I could do in the world that was better than what I was doing. There were people at the law firm that are literally the best in the world at what they do at Williamson Conley. And I wasn't the best in the world at that. But I thought there might be something out there that I could be best in the world at. Yep. And thought that was teaching. Yep. And, what, and that's what you thought it was. And in fact, I think you knew, sort of, Bill, from your prior experience. We're talking to Bill Bachman. And we're doing our Turning Point series from law partner to Division Three college football coach. When we come back, we're going to hear how that happened. Bill Bachman, Turning Point. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Bill Bachman, a law firm partner in Washington, D.C., who turned Division Three college football coach at Catholic University. That, too, is in Washington, D.C. And, Bill, we were talking about these nagging doubts, and that is, what is my God-given talent? You know, my dad was a great teacher. He was a great educator from New Jersey himself, a little town called Bergenfield, and that was his question every day when he woke up, when, even when he was superintendent at schools. What's each kid's God-given talent? What is it, and how do we put them on that, on that track? Uh, whether it's working with your hands, working on cars, or whatever it might be. And teaching kids will be a lot easier. My dad was a great teacher. And you had a love, it turns out, for teaching, Bill. And you really couldn't really get at that at a law firm, could you? No. Um, you know, like I said, um, uh, I... I coached and taught my kids when they were younger uh, throughout their lives, and I guess the precipitating event for the transition here was when my son turned 13, he kind of aged out, and my teaching coaching fix, I I didn't really do anything for fun other than teach and coach my daughter, my son, their various teams, and when my son aged out, I was, like, I, uh, there was a huge hole there that wasn't being satisfied, um, even recreationally, and so that led me to reach out to colleges in the D.C. area to see if there was a place that I could help. Well, you know, you you were always teaching your kids, and it sounds like you've got some great kids, Bill, and there's nothing we can be prouder of in our life, and our greatest life work is our progeny. It is our kids. But you were teaching your kids to pursue their dreams, to do what God had intended them to do, to figure that out, and yet, at the end, in the end, you weren't doing that yourself, were you? Talk about your kids and how they impacted this decision. Well, we spend so much time with, you know, I have three children. I'm blessed, as you're right. You know, you're so proud of your kids, and you preach every day um, uh, to chase their dreams or uh, to believe in what they want to become, and they can become anything they want to. And, um, and, and me and my wife talk often about the fact that, um, I had this harboring thought in my head that I should be doing something other than practicing law in Washington, D.C., yet I was, so I was talking, saying one thing to my own children and how they should live their lives, and I was living it a different way. And so um, this decision not only was good for me, but it was good for them because it was an opportunity for uh, them to see me um, practice what I preach. Um, and so after they got over the initial shock of, you know, some of the things that go along with working at a, at a big Washington law firm, you know, um, they were so proud and so excited, and they're excited to this moment, to this day, about uh, their father kind of fulfilling his dreams, which is what we tell them all the time, um, you know, to, to do the same in their own lives, not just today, but uh, next week, next month, next year, 20 years from now. Well, let's talk about that decision in that time. I remember, you know, here I am coming out of University of Virginia Law School. The world's my oyster, and I make this really hard decision. I've seen what the law is, and I go, you know what? I just don't want to do this for the rest of my life. A lot of my friends went forward, and I got the, are you crazy? Are you nuts? And, you know, those people I just sort of cut out of my life, but the ones who said, hey, good for you, do what you want to do, and go stumble around and figure out what that is. So here you are. Did you have an internal voice that said, are you nuts? Because forget about the external voice. I had that myself. I had to really battle with myself to not sit for the bar because I knew if I did, then I'd say I'm only going to practice for a year, and then it would be I'm only going to practice for five years, and I knew I'd be 50. And boom, it would be over. 
It would be over. I just I sensed that in myself, and I actually had a couple of good mentors. Talk about that, and talk about how your law law firm dealt with this, and talk about how your kids and your wife responded to this final decision. Well, I think you know initially uh, the "Are you nuts?" conversation you have for years before I was able to pull the trigger. Like that "Are you nuts?" didn't happen in the moments you pulled the trigger. It happened for two or three, four years. Like I think when you make a decision like this. Sometimes people around you think you're being impulsive, but I was nothing. I was not close to impulsive. I had thought about this, talked about this with my wife for years, but those conversations gravitated towards me saying, I must be nuts to think to do this. I must be nuts. Uh, And, of course, I wasn't, but at the time, that's what you think. Um, In terms of the law firm, um, I I think, you know, outwardly I have very good friends, and those those are great people at Williamson Connolly, and they were, uh, to the extent, um, they knew what I was doing, and we got a chance to talk about it. Uh, incredibly supportive. I suspect there probably were a handful of people there who, not completely incorrectly, thought I was being nuts about it. Um, and I think initially, with respect to my own children, um, they they never thought that. I mean, like all kids, you know, the first things people tend to think of it is how will this impact me? How this how will this impact me? And my kids were no different. Um, once we were able to um, kind of deal with that issue in the sense that this career change wasn't going to impact them, then they only saw it for the positive that it was, really, which was their father living his dreams, the same dreams that, um, you know, same kind of dream uh, that he was encouraging uh, all of them to live, you know. So I was, I, I think, really fulfilling my, my duty as a father to be a role model for my kids. But, but certainly at the beginning, you know, and there might have been a day or two days or three days where the kids had some, or a week or so, where the kids were wondering, like, well, you know, like any change that parents undertake, how will this impact me? Yep. And that's, I think that's normal. You know, change of any kind is tough. But if it's this kind of change with integrity, change with a deep reason, I think kids get over those kind of changes really fast, especially if they see a happier, more fulfilled dad and let's face it, so often as parents, we don't take care of ourselves or our marriages, and we sacrifice a lot at the altar of work and at the altar of the kids, and a lot of other things fall behind, in- including ourselves. Two things I think that are remarkable at this, you, you know, there's a, th- a strain in men that says, my responsibility is to provide a really good living. And so what you were leaving behind is a high-paying job for a lower-paying job. Also, a negative strain for a lot of men is status. And so many men try to pursue status, and we know where that always ends up in the end, Bill. Lonely, it doesn't get you what you want. But talk about the, those two things, responsibility and status, as it weighed into the decision. Well, I think uh, the responsibility is the, is the uh, corollary to the point you were making a moment ago, which is the are you nuts conversation you have with yourself, which is, um, you know, this is, uh, you're being selfish. You know, that's the, that's the question as a man you ask yourself. Yep. This is selfish. This is self-indulgent. Um, but I had the, the great support of my wife who basically said, you have taken care of us for a long time. You have supported us for a long time. You've put us in a situation where we can do this. And the only thing that's stopping us from doing it is, is, is just having the courage to do it. So, you know, probably the help of a, of a, of a wonderful wife that kind of pushes over the top. But a, a, a real concern. In terms of a status, um, well, you know, uh, I, I said this um, 
I figured out a long time ago um, that um, when you won a case or you lost a case at, at the law firm, your kids never cared. They never cared. Like, the people that were most important to you never cared. You know, you come home, you win a summary judgment, you know, argument or motion or something like that. Your kids didn't care. And so when you get to a place where you're walking away from those kinds of things, you know, the, the only status that really matters, and I, I kind of was comfortable enough in my own skin to figure this out, was the people closest to me, my wife, my children. And, um, you know, outwardly in the public, the status level may be impacted, but to the people who are closest to you that didn't measure you by the cases you wanted, the cases you lost in any event, uh, there was no really impact on my status. To them, I was who I was. I was a father. I was a friend. I was a husband. And so I, I was I was okay there because I kind of crossed the Rubicon on that thought process. You know, I, I, my, my kids had already taught me um, what was important and what was not important in terms of status. They, they just don't really care. Yeah. They, don't, they don't care. You know, they don't. They, they don't know it. They don't care. They don't want to care. They just want to be close to you. And you know, I, I find, by the way, that status is just a Rorschach test. Me personally, I could care less whether you're a lawyer or whatever you are. But boy, when I see a college football coach or a high school football coach engaged, and I know that all he has to wear is a football outfit with a logo with a school on it, that's status to me. Because uh, that yeah. guy's out there doing what he loves, and he's working with kids and. I, that was what my dad did all my life, and I thought it was the greatest life. He told me he never worked a day in his life. He was able to feed and provide for his family, and that's all you need to do in life. How has it changed your life, uh, if you can, Bill? 30 seconds or so. How does how does this changed your life? Well, I feel like your dad. I mean, I feel like um, um, right now um, my days are filled. I, I work as many hours as I work on the law firm. But I don't feel I'm working now. I don't. I don't. I. I. I, I don't work for a living anymore. I. I pop out of the bed early in the morning. I'm excited, and um, you know, from that standpoint, I do think I'm happier around my kids. I'm happier around my wife. Um, like I said, the, the paycheck has changed, but the hours have not changed. That's right. The, the hours never changed for my dad. He worked a long day, but he loved the product, and the product was children. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Turning point is the subject, Bill Bachman, from law firm partner to D3 college football coach. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about everything. Music, sports, love, death, and business. One of our favorite subjects is generosity, and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, a modern renaissance man. And of course, we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Take it away, Carl. You know, generosity isn't something that just affects other people. I bet a lot of you who are listening to this know somebody 
or some event where America's tradition of private giving touched very close to you. I only recently recognized one place where my earlier life would have been different if not for someone's philanthropy. During my elementary school years, one of my two best friends was a fellow named Dean Bettinger. We spent long hours together, catching frogs and building forts, riding bikes, playing baseball, tying our sisters to trees, all the stuff boys used to do outdoors before electronics turned so much of childhood into screen time. At one point, I banged on Dean's door, and his mother told me he was sick. It eventually turned out to be a kind of sick that a 10-year-old like me really couldn't understand. Dean's kidneys were failing. He ended up in the hospital for weeks. There was no happy answer when I asked when I would see my pal again. Suddenly, there was a big hole in my play days. Dean's kidney failure hit home again for me a few years ago when I was doing research for my recent Almanac of American Philanthropy, and I learned about the work of the John Hartford Foundation. The Hartford Foundation was funded by the two brothers who created the behemoth A&P grocery chain. A&P was the first merchant to reach $1 billion in annual sales. It went on to become the largest retailer in the world. A&P no longer exists, but for decades it was America's dominant grocery store. By the time the Hartford brothers died in the 1950s, their combined contributions of A&P stock made the Hartford Foundation the fourth largest philanthropy in the U.S. In the early 50s, the Foundation's trustees made a very smart decision to focus their giving tightly on one thing where they could really make a difference. They chose biomedical research. The Hartford Foundation quickly became the largest supporter of clinical science in America. Between 1954 and 1979, the Hartford Foundation provided hospitals and medical centers with hundreds of millions of dollars in research grants, equipment, fellowships for scientists, patient support, publication grants, and so forth. They ended up catalyzing many of the era's most important advances in medicine. Keep in mind that the federal government was not a big player in health research at that time. After World War II, the entire budget of the U.S. National Institutes of Health was less than $10 million a year. The major force in funding biomedical investigations in the U.S., especially on the cutting edge, was private philanthropy. And the Hartford Foundation was the big dog. In fact, during its peak spending years of 1962 to 1972, the Hartford folks funded more biomedical research than all other major foundations combined. Now, biomedical research sounds like a nice thing for a charity to support, but that's a pretty big and fuzzy category. So what specifically did this grocery store money produce to make the world a gentler place? Well, for example, Hartford funding was very important in helping us understand how the immune system works, which was valuable not only in controlling disease, but also in figuring out the puzzles of organ rejection. Hartford was also a leader in the development of the artificial heart, in many advances in cancer research, and in micro-neurosurgery, a now essential branch of medicine that involves repairing nerves and spinal cords and brains using microscopes and tiny instruments. Among many other areas where the Hartford Foundation advanced medical practice, probably the place where they most clearly saved thousands and thousands of lives was in fighting kidney failure. Until very recently, the failure of your kidneys was a death sentence. Within days or weeks, your body would be poisoned from the inside. 
Some of the first waves of Hartford Brothers' money went into battling this ancient scourge. In 1954, Hartford gave Brigham Hospital in Boston a grant that directly supported the world's first successful transplants of kidneys. This triumph was soon expanded with another $200,000 grant. More money was spent to pay the hospital bills of the people undergoing the experimental transplants, and money was invested in publishing the results in papers so other doctors could learn valuable lessons. Hartford set up all three of the new professional groups created to help doctors share information on reversing kidney failure. Money from the A&P fortune was also crucial in saving lives via the artificial kidney. Machines had been invented that could remove the poisons left in the body after kidney failure. But these literally weighed a half ton or more, were terribly expensive and slow. The Hartford Foundation put up the funds to turn so-called hemodialysis into a practical, life-saving therapy. Through weekly treatment sessions of a few hours, even patients experiencing complete kidney shutdown could be kept alive and active. The world's first out-of-hospital dialysis center treated its inaugural patient using Hartford money in 1962. Listen to the doctor who set up those groundbreaking dialysis machines in Seattle describe his first success in an early instructional video. The man that you're going to see here, Clyde Shields, should have died four years ago of end-stage kidney disease. Instead, on March 9, 1960, he became the first patient to receive chronic hemodialysis in our program. As you can see, he is fully rehabilitated to his job as a machinist, despite the fact that he has not passed any urine at all over the last four years. This case, together with the 15 other patients now under treatment in Seattle, proves that the artificial kidney can replace the life-sustaining functions of the normal human kidney. Which brings me back to my boyhood friend, Dean Benger. Though I didn't know then that it was a brand new technique brought to the public by a generous philanthropist, Dean started undergoing dialysis after his kidneys failed. It saved his life while doctors figured out what was going on in his body. Eventually, Dean lost one of his kidneys, but the other one gradually began to work again, and today he lives quite happily and productively as a husband and father and engineer. During our late elementary and middle school years, Dean was crucial in pulling me into Boy Scouting. Without him, I never would have spent the many hours in the woods that turned me into an enthusiastic outdoorsman. The skills I first developed as a scout with Dean led me to a lifelong passion for backpacking and hiking and exploring the wilderness. Those have been some of the most satisfying experiences of my adult life. And after I read about the Hartford Foundation's determined gift-making that brought life-saving dialysis to communities all across America, this finally really hit me. I realized that, you know what? If the family behind the A&P grocery stores had decided to put their money into, say, Caribbean real estate, Instead of donating it to health research, I would have lost my best childhood buddy, as well as important life experiences of my own. There are about 700,000 Americans living today, despite the fact that their kidneys have failed, thanks to dialysis and kidney transplants. For them, for Dean Bettinger, and for me, the grocery money that John Hartford shared with other Americans is a very big and very personal gift. For Sweet Charity, this has been Carl Zinsmeister. And for more tales from the Almanac of American Philanthropy, find the book at Amazon.
And that's the Almanac of American Philanthropy. And thanks to the Philanthropy Roundtable, sponsors of this great, great series, Sweet Charity. This is Our American Stories. And thanks, Carl Zinsmeister, for your work. our American stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here on this show about everyone from international celebrities to folks you've never heard of, because each of those stories gives us a little window into a life. If we can't walk a mile in someone else's shoes, we can at least hear a story about it. Joey Cortez did some great work for us as an intern, and then he went back to school at Boston College. While reading the B.C. student newspaper, The Gavel, Joey came across an inspiring story from a young woman named Kitty Sargent. She's in the B.C. class of 2016, and so many people talk about this upcoming college generation, and I think rather pejoratively, and it's a shame. And We don't think this way or act like this on our show. Kitty kindly recorded her story, and Joey produced it for us. Let's take a listen. This is Kitty Sargent on Being Pretty. I walked into my 7th grade math class the day after I got a haircut, feeling like a million bucks. My hair was straight and shiny, my smile stretched from ear to ear. I felt pretty. Beautiful, even. That's saying a lot for an awkward 7th grader. But suddenly, a voice cut through the happiness I was feeling. This was girl Gabrielle. Wow, Kitty. If only you got contacts, then you'd actually be pretty. Wait. So I wasn't pretty, but I could be. I had gotten glasses in fifth grade and wore them every day for the next 10 years. I tried contacts, but never liked them. So I stuck with my four eyes. As I got older, I seemed to have it all together on the outside, but my self-confidence plummeted. Pretty girls weren't supposed to wear glasses. It didn't bother me as much in high school, but that changed once I got to BC. My insecurities about my glasses was compounded by a host of other body images and appearance-based concerns. Never before had I been around so many people who cared so much about what they looked like. Diets weren't a thing in my high school, but in college, carbs were suddenly evil. The elliptical became a close personal friend of mine at BC. And shouldn't that have made me pretty? Shouldn't it have made me happy? The other girls certainly seemed happy, and they were pretty too. My sophomore eight-man had dieting competitions to hold us accountable, with charts posted in the kitchen and planks doled out to those who messed up. The app I used the most on my phone was my calorie counter. I was doing it right, but I still didn't feel pretty. 
My body image issues were also largely driven by a need to overcompensate for shortcomings in other areas. At the end of my freshman year, I found a lump in my throat that was growing quickly. It was a thyroid nodule, and it continued to grow all throughout my first semester of sophomore year. The doctor wanted to wait and monitor how big it got before making any decisions on what to do with it. But this wait-and-see attitude drove me crazy. I was trying so hard to do everything right, and I still wasn't in control. It was like my body was laughing at me. You want to fit in? You want to feel pretty? You don't want that confidence to be fake? Well, here's a curveball. The watch-and-see method led to a decision to remove the nodule in March of my sophomore year. But I knew about the surgery in January, which led to two months of agonizing waiting. It was in this two-month window that I started a gratitude practice. I needed to find a silver lining to come to terms with the lump in my throat, so I hoped that practicing gratitude would help me to do so. Every morning I would wake up, sit down holding my mug of tea, and list off what I was grateful for. My parents, my friends, and BC. But as the weeks went by, my, cra- my practice grew more routine. I'm grateful to be a woman in a society that respects me as an equal contributor. I'm grateful to live in a democracy where my vote, my opinion, matters. I'm grateful that the sun rises in the east every morning. And one morning during my reflection, a new thought popped into my head. I was grateful for my body, because it lets me run and jump and sing and hug. It lets me explore the world and learn new things. In that moment, I wasn't grateful for how my body looked, but for what it did. That morning was the first morning in many years that I liked my body. The surgery came and went. I was back at school uh, a week later when my surgeon called. It wasn't just a lump. It was cancer. I was shocked. It wasn't supposed to be cancerous. I wasn't supposed to get cancer, especially as a sophomore in college. My body didn't love me, and I didn't love my body. But then there was that nagging gratitude practice where I discovered all these great things that I adored about what my body could do. As my treatment ran its course over the next few months, I found the chance to marvel at modern medicine. A hundred years ago, I probably would have died. But with the aid of medical treatment, my body found the strength to fight back. I was declared cancer-free on July 1st, 2014. I was free from doctors, needles, and medical words too long to pronounce. I was free to be me again, and not just a girl with cancer. Somehow, by getting sick, by being pushed so far into loathing my body and what it had, quote, done to me, I stopped hating my body. Obviously, I experienced setbacks. I still have days where I criticize how I look. I got LASIK surgery the same summer that I finished my cancer cancer treatment. And I won't pretend that my glasses disappearing didn't help my confidence. But generally, I found I couldn't hate something so incredible that had fought back and won against this terrible disease. Now, when I eat healthy foods, it's to nourish my body so it can perform its very best. Not because I'm counting calories. When I work out, it's not to lose weight. It's just nice to feel strong after feeling so weak in the past. The more I forced myself to love my body, the less forced it felt. The more I forced myself to act confident, the less it felt like an act. 
I went abroad to Paris and ate more bread and cheese and wine than I had in the previous two and a half years at BC. I realized that good food isn't evil, it's heavenly. The French would call it a raison d'être, a reason to be. Being away from BC for a whole semester also showed me that I needed to want things because I myself truly wanted them. If I didn't want to fit into the BC stereotypes of beauty, then I shouldn't let myself feel pressured to do so. Of course, that's far easier to say when you're six time zones away. Back on campus now, that pressure is still just as present as it was when I, before I went abroad. Sometimes I wish my waist were smaller, my hair less frizzy, my laugh less obnoxious. The list goes on and the critiques are still as numerous as before. But then I remember what I'm grateful for about my body. I've sung a mass at La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. I've climbed the Duomo in Florence. I've gone on sunset jogs along the Seine in Paris. I've beaten cancer. The positives start to outweigh the negatives, and those critical voices seem to get a little quieter each time. The words that one 13-year-old girl forgot five seconds later still occasionally ring in my ears. Am I pretty today? Am I ever actually pretty? I will always be working to shift my conception of self-worth away from just what I look like. But today, I know I can usually look in the mirror and be happy with what I see. With who I see. I see someone who's just a little more confident than she was yesterday. Just a little happier. And today, that's all I need. And great work on that, Joey. And thank you, Kitty, for revealing that part of yourself. And uh, and Faith, Faith is 21 on our staff, on our team. I've got an 11-year-old girl, and I've already heard her ask that question to herself in front of a mirror. What goes there? I don't, and I, by the way, I hear this is happening more and more with young men too. Um, but talk about, uh, talk about this, this body image thing with girls. I think so much of it is comparison. We look at other people and it's, you know, I'm too skinny, I'm too fat. In comparison to who? It's other people. One of my favorite quotes is Theodore Roosevelt. He says, comparison is the thief of joy. Because what are, when we're comparing to other people, we're depressed, we're ungrateful, we're even hateful towards others because we're looking at them thinking they have this while I want that or whatever it is so we may act unkindly. But I love how honest Kitty is and what she says about how, okay, I haven't fully overcome this. Like some days it's still hard. Right, right. And some days it's still difficult. And some days I still look in the mirror and wish I was somebody else or I wish my you know, my chest was bigger, my waist was smaller, I had a thigh gap or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, which most people don't even know what it is, um, guys at least. And so I think I love her honesty because even though she has come so far, she still has to refocus so often. And I wish that it hadn't been through those difficulties, but I'm so proud of her and I hope like a lot of other people can learn from what she Well, shared. if you've got daughters or if you're a woman... Um, I know my wife, I don't know anyone who has a woman in their life knows that they're looking in the mirror different than for the most part men look in the mirror because I think we look in the mirror and think, wow, we look wonderful. Losing hair, the belly's getting bigger, and we just go, let's have a beer. That's about it. And here on Our American Stories, we talk about everything. But that gratitude practice, I think that's the most important thing in the world. And thanks for that quote as well, Faith, on comparison stripping you of your joy because it does in the end. It does. And here on Our American Stories, we love to tell stories about everything and from everyone here 
Well, hopefully you have a different impression of young college folks. Because they ain't any different than we were. They're just growing up in different times. We were all young once. We're older. But my goodness, the self-doubt, the beauty in this young lady's voice. We want to get to know her better. We're going to reach out to her. I think this is a voice we want to hear more from here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we love to tell American dreamers stories and great business stories because so many people pursue the American dream through business. It's not just arts and sports and it's through free enterprise and all great businesses start with an idea. And today we're digging into a business with roots in Nobel Prize winning research. We're talking with Jason Shelton, CEO of Tilo Years a company that offers a simple genetic test that gives you a glimpse at how your DNA is aging. And Jason, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, a fascinating idea, fascinating uh, product. But before we do that, Jason, we always like to ask everybody where you grew up, uh, your first job, and talk about your parents, and in no particular order. Okay. Well... I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania in a little place called Jeanette, PA, which was a former glass mining, glass making town outside of Pittsburgh. Um, I lived there, you know, until I, my parents were divorced, actually, when I was about 14 years old, at which point I moved to uh, suburban Columbus, Ohio, where I went to high school and then went to college at Ohio State University. So uh, I spent you know, my formative years in a place where it was a very blue-collar, typical, you know, former Rust Belt kind of city that then turned into a a uh, Midwestern kind of upbringing. I guess my first job when I was there was with a friend of mine's brother-in-law working when I was about 12 years old. I worked uh, on a summer construction crew when I was 12 that put roofs on houses. So I remember this, uh, my friend and I would go work alongside of these other, what seemed like full-grown guys for, I think, $2 an hour uh, on roofs, taking flat shovels, scraping off shingles uh, from the tops of the roofs. What I remember most about it was trying to see how how high he and I could get the nails to pop out of the shingles whenever we would kind of scrape it with the shovels. And that was kind of my uh, my my first job, and I still still remember that. Oh, that's that's hard to forget. I mean, that's uh, well, it's hot weather in the summer. That's hot work in the summer. It's risky work, and it's exciting. It, it yeah. had to be exciting for you too. In some ways, I remember sitting in the shade, having lunch, counting the seconds, and I remember counting how many seconds it took to make one penny. And I would say to my friend, "Wow, I can't believe we're sitting here getting paid for eating lunch." We're making a penny every, you know, 10 <laughs> So where, you, you go to college, what do you study at Ohio State? And sorry about what happened to the Buckeyes, and the good news is that, well, Clemson ended up beating Alabama too. Yeah, that's true, that's true. They lost to the national champion. Yep. But uh, nonetheless, I, I studied biochemistry 
um, in undergraduate. I thought that maybe I was going to go be a doctor. <clears throat> and then I worked uh, for about three years in college and just after as an emergency room technician, doing like hands-on kinds of kinds of work um, in the ER, treating lots of patients in this uh, big level one trauma center in central Ohio called Riverside Methodist Hospital. And I worked for a number of years there. I, uh, you know, kind of decided I wasn't going to go to business school and not long after that, I went back and I did my uh, graduate business school studies back in Pittsburgh, uh, got my MBA at University of Pittsburgh, and that's how I eventually made the transition into working in business and medical technology types of companies. You know, one of the interesting things we talk about a lot is, you know, and, and Bernie Marcus was interesting on this subject, so is Ken Langone, and as you, I'm not sure if you know, but those are the two, co- two, two of the three co-founders of Home Depot. And they, they always talk about the difference between people who get MBAs and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And very often, there's not much intersection between those two. Yeah. The MBA is, sort of comes on in from outside and helps manage businesses that are mature. Uh, yeah. Talk about the, the MBA, how it prepared you for some things, but in the end, how it didn't prepare you for others as it relates to starting a business. Yeah. I think the MBA is sort of a great primer to figure out how to... I think there's two different things that you kind of learn to do. I think one is you learn how to build a brand. And I think when you go to business school, what you're really learning how to do is to take something else that somebody built and manage that asset. And that's what I call building a brand. So, you know, when I came out of business school, I went and worked at SmithKline Beecham, which was a, a large pharma company. It's now GlaxoSmithKline. And I helped manage businesses, manage brands like Nicoderm CQ, the Smoking Cessation Patch, and Aquafresh Toothpaste. But I think the thing that doesn't really teach you as much is how to, how to build a business, not just build a brand. And so I, I moved out to California about 17 years ago and joined the founders and this small group of people that were launching this product called Invisalign, Invisible Braces. And so I worked there from when we launched that product for about six years. And then the time I was there, we grew it from nothing to about $200 million a year in revenue. And Align to this day is still around, and Invisalign sells over $800 million a year worth of stuff. And I think, you know, the market capitalization of that company is about $7.5 billion. So you really have to go on the job, I think, to learn how to operate a company and to learn how to actually grow and build a business, which I think is distinctly different from just managing a brand that somebody else did. And there's, there's a lot to that that I don't think you get in business school, honestly. I think you have to go out and you have to get some experience actually building and running something. And some people are fortunate enough to get it and some people, unfortunately, uh, are not. Yeah, and there's a lot of triage that happens. I mean, you have your business plan, but then you have life. You've got to put on a lot of different hats, and you don't have time to write a lot of reports or memos because, well, you just got to put out fires in large measure. Um, talk about the nature of that, uh, of that personality. And then on the back half, when we come back, we're going to talk about Tilo uh, as well. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I remember I once had a good CEO who came in, and <laughs> he said, we're going to do three things. He said, one, we're going to make customers love us. Number two, we're going to be operationally excellent. Number three, we're going to build a global brand. And notice he put that thing about building a brand at the end. Because when you start with a business, I think the first aspect of your personality has to be thinking about who your customer is and how it is you're going to create value for them in a way that is more than the sum of the parts that you put into the product that you're building. And then, you know, operationally, you have to be excellent. You have to be able to, you know, deliver that product in a way that is, you're really exceeding the expectations of the customer who's buying it, and that's a whole lot of different process stuff. And then finally, you build the brand, which 
is something we're just beginning to do with Tilo years. Well, and that's uh, fascinating, and the different types of personalities that do these things. Some are great at building the business. Others are great at managing and branding the business. But branding, as you're right, is always last. First, got to get customers. When we come back, more with our conversation with Jason Shelton, CEO of Tilo Years. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. American Stories, and it's our American Dreamers series that we're in the middle of right now in our conversation with Jason Shelton, CEO of Tilo Years. We learned a bit about his background, where he was from, small town outside Pittsburgh to start, then Columbus, Ohio, home of uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes, and middle-class upbringing, Midwestern upbringing, uh, gets an MBA, works for a big multinational company, and then in the end goes off to work at a at a startup, and then, well, it's Tilo years. How does this happen? What what is the genesis of the idea that starts or jump starts this company? Well, the genesis of the idea of Tilo, the company behind Tilo years, is really at its core an idea from scientists. I mean, it's in our DNA, if you will. I mean, so the company was founded back in 2010 by a group of four scientists, and one of whom had won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for her work in this field just the year prior, in 2009. And so she got together with three of her other scientific colleagues and said, look, I mean, we really believe in the science of telomeres, or these protective end caps at the ends of your DNA, as something that we think could be broadly made available to people to help them you know, be inspired to live a healthier, longer life by having this knowledge about themselves at the level of their own DNA. So they got together and they founded the company and, you know, based on their success in the field, were able to raise the initial money that was needed to really help get the company off the ground. Um, I got involved in the company about three years ago now um, when the investors of the company had... um, one particular investor had kind of increased how much money they had invested in the company to give them majority ownership of the company. And that's when they went out and said, you know, I think it's time to bring somebody in who has a little more business experience who can sort of help build on the basis of science that the company has established and ultimately turn it into something that we could commercialize. And talk about that transition, because you have to now parachute in, you're coming in, You've got the guys who founded the company. You've got early investors. Americans now are learning a little bit about this, Jason, through Shark Tank, but life isn't Shark Tank. Uh, Describe what that's like going in and the sensitivities and the things you have to think about as you come into uh, Tilo years. Yeah, sure. Well, I think when you come into a business that's at that stage in that situation, you have to be pretty sensitive to the people who've been there before. And I, I always tell new people that come in to say, Look, assume that every decision that was made before you got here was made for good reasons, 
and that it was the right decision and understand what those reasons were and understand how it is you might choose to make different decisions going forward based on the facts as you find them at that time. So, you know, come in with an open mind, come in with a learning type of attitude and, you know, help build your vision for what comes next based on the ideas of the original owners plus your own. And, and honestly, I mean, startups, you know, you bring up Shark Tank. I mean, startups like ours, they really are the new kind of basic American small business. You know, I mean, we have under 50 employees. We Every one of them works in the United States. They're all here in our office in Northern California. Um, and it's really a lot like every other business, um, except, you know, if you've got struggles on one side to make sure you have enough cash on hand to kind of grow the business until it gets to be profitable. And you have to make sure that you're able to not just create customers, like I said, but also, you know, satisfy their expectations. Because sometimes it's one thing to make a customer, it's another to, you know, serve them once you have them. And I think a lot of that starts if you have a great idea and you're offering something that has a pretty sound, you know, value proposition for the person that that is uh, taking a look at your product and your company and wants to decide if they want to join the community that you're building through the product that you offer. Yeah, and it sounded like you had to come to the, the company not only with a curious mind, but you had to come with a generous heart, um, which is something that I think can, can be lacking sometimes in these transitions. By the way, we had uh, the uh, the head of the guy who founded Commerce Bank on, and he said we weren't interested in customers, we were interested in creating fans. Yeah. And in fact, that was the watchword at his company, was turning folks into fans. Now back to these telomeres. You were saying that it's the ends of the DNA like a cap. Like what, like the, like the cap at the end of a shoelace? Talk a little bit more about this science that's at the back of uh, yeah. telo years. Yeah. So to understand telomeres, you've got to step back for a moment and just understand a little bit about biology in general. So everybody realizes that your body, at its core, at the most basic level, is made up of cells. And inside of every single one of those cells that makes up your tissues and your blood and your organs, there's a little nucleus, and inside the nucleus contains all your DNA. And your DNA, think of it as a big, long ladder that has millions of rungs. And on the rungs in the middle of the ladder, that's your genes, long sequences of rungs that are the, you know, bits of information that say what color hair you're going to have and what color eyes you're going to have and how your body's going to be shaped. At the very ends of the ladder, there's thousands of rungs that repeat. And those repeat series of rungs at the ends of the DNA are called the telomeres, or these protective end caps that are used in the replication process every time one of your cells divides and makes more of itself. And that's a very natural process. As you grow and as you heal and as you injure yourself to, to rejuvenate your cells, they have to divide and they have to make more of themselves. The telomeres are used in that process of division and replication. And every time your cells divide, a little bit of that telomere, as one ladder connects to the other ladder, breaks off and is used up. For that reason, how much length you have at the end of your ladder, how much telomere length you have remaining, is a good indicator of how much cellular reserve capacity your body has left to thrive. And Think of that as like, it's like how much fuel is left in your cellular fuel tank that lets your body heal and grow as you, as you age and get older. So tell us about how telomeres and telo years connect. What's the service you offer to folks who are listening? Uh, what's the service you offer to the general public? Okay. 
So telo years is a simple genetic test that reveals the cellular age that's encoded in your own DNA based on the length of your telomeres. And so what we do is we have a simple test that based on poking your finger and giving us a drop of blood on a piece of paper that you then may send back to us in the mail, we analyze your DNA and tell you how long your telomeres are. But the real insight in how long they are, <clears throat> I think, is contained not just in your length of your telomere, which a lot of people find to be abstract. I think the real insight of it is, is in comparing it to other normal, healthy people who are your same age and your same gender and telling you, based on the length of your telomeres, your age in telo years, which is the telomere length of the typical man or woman who is the same age as yours. And what this tells you is how well you're aging at the level of your cells. And this has a number of values, I think, to a person. I mean, what we're really selling is knowledge that helps you understand at the cellular level how well you are aging. But it is also giving you inspiration because by knowing this aspect of your DNA, um, you're able to, you know, take this courageous leap to understand something that is a uniquely integrative measure of your own genetics and your lifestyle and your environment and your stress. And that, we find, can be very inspiring to people. It can help them make positive lifestyle changes because when they learn this information about themselves, they're able to, you know, take steps to make changes and engage in positive lifestyle management that might help them make a better choice in the future or might help them in some cases even show that their hard work is paying off in the choices that they've made in the past. And, you know, we kind of live in this, what I call a new genetic information age. I mean, since the Human Genome Project, um, we are really living in an era where people have access to their own genetic information, and that information is intersecting with these desire among consumers to track and quantify themselves, you know, through fitness trackers. So what we have basically, it's kind of like a fitness tracker for your own DNA, if you will, except the information is a lot more personal because it's about who you are and the level of yourselves and not just what you're doing and how many steps you're taking. And we find that to be pretty compelling and pretty fascinating, particularly in a world where healthcare continues to evolve. So where in America you're seeing uh, really, we have a healthcare system that's based on disease care. Uh, when people have injuries or illnesses, they go to the doctor and they try to get it fixed and they try and take a pill. But, you know, we think innovations like ours are helping evolve the healthcare system from a disease care model to more of a preventative medicine, personalized healthcare model where you are ultimately put back in control of understanding the risk that might be coming down the pike for you. And by understanding your own information about your DNA, you might be able to better tackle and manage and handle that risk to prevent the disease that keeps you out of going to the doctor. Yeah, and that knowledge is power. Jason Shelton, CEO of Telo Years, that's T-E-L-O Years, Telo Years, mail-order genetic testing company. Jason, thanks so much for joining us in our American Dreamer series. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to their great online courses at hillsdale.edu. And again, on this day in history, the world lost one of the finest comedic geniuses of the 20th century. His name was Jerome Horowitz. While that name might not be familiar, his nickname is bound to ring a bell. Here's Jesse. Jerome Lester Horowitz was better known by his stage name, Curly Howard. He was an American comedian and vaudevillian actor best known as the most outrageous and energetic member of the Three Stooges, which also featured his older brothers Moe and Shimp Howard, along with Larry Fine. An untrained actor, Curly was known for his high-pitched voice and vocal expressions like... And... And who could forget... Curly Howard was born Jerome Lester Horowitz in the Bensonhurst section of the Brooklyn Borough of New York City. Of Lithuanian Jewish ancestry, he was the fifth of five Horowitz brothers. Because he was the youngest, his brothers called him Babe to tease him. Although when his older brother Shemp Howard married Gertrude Frank, who was also named Babe, the brothers called him Curly to avoid confusion. We're not ordinary people. <laughs> We're morons. A quiet child, Curly rarely caused problems for his parents. Something his older brothers, Moe and Shimp, excelled in. Hey, I got an idea. Shut up, I don't want to hear it. He was a mediocre student, but excelled as an athlete on the school basketball team. He didn't graduate from high school, but kept himself busy with odd jobs and constantly followed his older brothers, whom he idolized. He was also an accomplished ballroom dancer and singer, who regularly turned up at the Triangle Ballroom in Brooklyn. When Curly was just 12 years old, he accidentally shot himself in the left ankle while cleaning a rifle. Mo rushed him to the hospital and saved his life. The wound resulted in a noticeably thinner left leg and a slight limp. He was so frightened of surgery that he never had the limp corrected. While with the Three Stooges, he developed his famous exaggerated walk to mask the limp on screen. Curly was interested in music and comedy and would watch his brother Shemp and Moe perform as Stooges in Ted Healy's vaudeville act. He also liked to hang out backstage, although he never participated in any of those early routines. He married his first wife, Julia Rosenthal, on August 5, 1930, but the couple had their marriage annulled shortly afterwards. Curly's first on-stage break was as a comedy musical conductor in 1928 for the Orville Knapp Band. Moe later recalled that his performances usually overshadowed those of the band. Are you trying to give me the double talk? Though Curly enjoyed the gig, he watched as Moe, Shimp, and Larry Fine made it big as some of Ted Healy's stooges. Vaudeville star Healy had a very popular stage act in which he would try to tell jokes or sing, only to have his stooges wander on stage and interrupt or heckle him during the performance. Funny, eh? Yeah. <laughs> well, laugh this off. Meanwhile, Healy and company appeared in their first feature film, Rube Goldberg's Soup to Nuts, in 1930. Shemp became tired of Ted Healy's alcoholism and violent temper and had a falling out that caused him to leave the Three Stooges for another opportunity in show business. With Shemp gone, Moe suggested that Curly fill in for the role of the Third Stooge. But Healy felt that Curly, with his thick chestnut hair and elegant waxed mustache at the time, didn't look funny enough for the role. If at least you don't succeed, keep on sucking till you do succeed. Curly left the room and returned minutes later with his head shaven and got the role. In 1934, MGM was grooming Healy up as a solo comedian in feature films, so Healy dissolved his Stooges act to pursue his own career. 
The team of Howard, Fine, and Howard then renamed their act the Three Stooges. <laughs> that same year, they signed on to appear in two real comedy short subjects for Columbia Pictures. The Stooges soon became the most popular short subject attraction, with Curly playing an integral part in the trio's work. You can't eat me. I'm too tough. I'll give you indigestion. Curly's childlike mannerisms and natural comedic charm made him a hit with audiences, especially with children. He was known in the act for having an indestructible head, which always won out by breaking anything that it hit. <laughs> Despite having no formal acting training, his comedic skills were exceptional. Many times, directors would simply let the camera roll freely and let Curly improvise. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. By the time the Stooges hit their peak in the late 1930s, their films had almost become vehicles for Curly's unbridled comic performances. Classics like A Plumbing We Will Go in 1940, We Want Our Mummy in 1938, An Ache in Every Steak in 1941, and Cactus Makes Perfect in 1942 displays his ability to take inanimate objects like food, tools, or pipes and turn them into ingenious comic props. <laughs> When Curly forgot his lines, that merely allowed him to improvise on the spot so that the take could continue uninterrupted. Come on, come on! By 1944, Curly's energy began to decline. A Curly whose voice was deeper and his actions slower. After filming of the feature-length Rockin' in the Rockies in December of 1944, he finally checked himself into a cottage hospital in Santa Barbara, California, and was diagnosed with extreme hypertension, a retinal hemorrhage, and obesity. Half Wits Holiday, released in 1947, would be Curly's final appearance as an official member of the Stooges. During filming on May 6, 1946, Curly suffered a severe stroke while sitting in director Jules White's chair, waiting to film the last scene of the day. When Curly was called by the assistant director to take the stage, he didn't answer. Mo went looking for his brother. He found Curly with his head dropped down to his chest. Mo later recalled that his mouth was distorted and that he was unable to speak, only cry. Curly partially recovered and with his hair regrown, made a brief cameo appearance as a train passenger barking in his sleep in the third film after his brother Shemp's return. Hold that line. What is that, a cocky spaniel? No, I think it's just a spaniel. It was the only film that featured Larry Fine and all three Howard brothers, Moe, Shemp, and Curly, simultaneously. Still not fully recovered from his stroke, Curly met Valerie Newman and married her on July 31, 1947. Although his health continued to decline after the marriage, Valerie gave birth to a daughter, Janie, in 1948. Later that year, Curly suffered a second massive stroke, which left him partially paralyzed. He used a wheelchair by 1950 and was fed boiled rice and apples as part of his diet to reduce his weight and blood pressure. In February of 1951, he was placed in a nursing home where he suffered another stroke a month later. On January 18, 1952, Curley died at the age of 48. He was given a Jewish funeral and laid to rest at Home of Peace Cemetery in East L.A. Curly's off-screen personality was the antithesis of his on-screen manic persona. An introvert, he generally kept to himself, rarely socializing with people unless he had been drinking, which he would increasingly turn to as the stress of his career grew. Never an intellectual, Curly simply refrained from engaging in crazy antics unless he was in his element, with family, performing, or intoxicated. 
Curly found constant companionship in his dogs and often befriended strays wherever the Stooges were traveling. He would pick up homeless dogs and take them with him from town to town until he found a home somewhere else on the tour. When not performing, he would usually have a few dogs waiting for him at home as well. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Huh? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Are you trying to give me the double talk? Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth? Why don't you answer him? He's talking big Latin. I don't know what he's saying. He's asking you if you swear. No, but I know all the words. He's asking you if you'll swear to tell the truth. Truth is stranger than fiction, Judgey Wudgey. <laughs> Kindly address this court as your honor and take the oath. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, all the truth, and nothing but the truth? Certainly. What have I got to lose? Take the stand. Where do I put it? No, no. Take the stand. I got it. Now what will I do with it? This is our American stories. Great job on that, Jesse, as always. The life of Curly. We do it all here. We promised you that when we started. We keep doing it. One of the great comic geniuses of the 20th century, no doubt, and for centuries beyond. One of the great physical comedians of all time. Perfect timing when he spoke. This is our American story. The life of Jerome Horowitz. Habib and this is Our American Stories and you're in for a treat. On this day in history in 1882 in the United Kingdom a writer was born well someone you may not have heard of by name but you certainly know this writer's characters and the writer's characters impacted almost every young American since and even older Americans the characters are that brilliant that original it's likely you know the disney version of this writer's work but not his original creation today we feature his story winnie the pooh by a milne dedicated to her hand in hand we come christopher robin and i to lay this book in your lap say you're surprised say you like it Say it's just what you wanted, because it's yours, because we love you. Alexander Milne, or A.A. Milne, creator of Winnie the Pooh, was born in 1882. Milne was the youngest of three sons who taught himself to read at the age of two. He began writing humorous pieces as a schoolboy and continued to do so while attending Cambridge. In 1903, 
He left Cambridge and went to London to write. Although he was broke by the end of his first year, he persevered and supported himself until 1906, writing detective stories and plays. In 1913, he married his wife Daphne, and two years later, though a pacifist, went to France to serve in World War I. In 1920, the couple's only son, Christopher Robin, was born, and they purchased the farm in Sussex. A nearby forest inspired the hundred-acre wood where Winnie the Pooh's adventures would be set. Milne published two volumes of poetry that would inspire his two Pooh books. When We Were Very Young became the first and was published in 1924. That was followed by Now We Are Six in 1927. Read by the official voice of the Pooh books, the great Peter Dennis. Christopher Robin said this about Dennis. Peter Dennis has made himself Pooh's ambassador extraordinary, and no bear has ever had a more devoted friend. So if you want to meet the real Pooh, the bear I knew, the bear my father wrote about, listen to Peter. Here's a verse. The good little girl. It's funny how often they say to me, Jane, have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl? And when they have said it, they say it again. Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl? I go to a party. I go out to tea. I go to an aunt for a week at the sea. I come back from school or from playing a game. Wherever I come from, it's always the same. Well, have you been a good girl, Jane? It's always the end of the loveliest day. Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl? I went to the zoo and they waited to say, Have you been a good girl? Have you been a good girl? Well, what did they think that I went there to do? And why should I want to be bad at the zoo? And should I be likely to say if I had? So that's why it's funny of Mummy and Dad this asking and asking in case I was bad. Well, have you been a good girl, Jane? When Christopher Robin was about a year old, he received a stuffed bear as a present. The child soon accumulated a collection of similar animals, which inspired Milne to begin writing a series of whimsical stories about the toys. Christopher Robin's actual stuffed toys are now under glass in the New York Public Library, where 750,000 people visit them every year. Winnie the Pooh was published in 1926, and The House at Pooh Corner in 1928. Ernest Shepard marvelously illustrated the books, using Christopher Robin and his animals as models. After Milne's death in 1956, the rights to the Pooh characters were sold to the Walt Disney Company, which has made many Pooh cartoon movies, a Disney Channel television show, as well as Pooh-related merchandise. It is very important to note that the Pooh characters in Milne's books have only superficial commonalities with the Disney's repackaged product, all the complexity and wonderful character development is replaced with an all-smiling, all-the-time, bland band of one-dimensional Disney-fied rip-offs. He's round and he's fuzzy, I love him because he's just Pooh Bear, Winnie the Pooh Bear, looking for fun, chasing some honeybees. Forbes magazine ranked Winnie the Pooh the most valuable fictional character in 2002. Winnie the Pooh merchandising products alone had an annual sales of more than $5.9 billion. In 2005, 
Winnie the Pooh generated $6 billion, a figure surpassed by only Mickey Mouse. For too long, Winnie the Pooh has been relegated to children's bookshelves and Disney children's cartoons. But what you probably don't know is that A.A. A. Milne didn't write the stories and poems for children. He intended them for the child within you and me and countless millions of others. In the last Pooh book, The House at Pooh Corner, Milne writes the final dialogue between Pooh and a maturing Christopher Robin in a way that only an adult could connect with. To be candid, I cry every time I get to this part. Christopher Robin, who was still looking at the world with his chin in his hands, called out, Pooh? Yes, said Pooh. When I'm... When... <sighs> Pooh? Yes, Christopher Robin. I'm not going to do nothing any more. Never again? Well, not so much. They don't let you. Pooh waited for him to go on, but he was silent again. Yes, Christopher Robin, said Pooh helpfully. Pooh, when I'm, you know, when I'm not doing nothing, will you come up here sometimes? Just me? Yes, Pooh. Will you be here too? Yes, Pooh, I will be, really. I promise I will be, Pooh. That's good, said Pooh. Pooh, promise you won't forget about me ever, not even when I'm a hundred. Pooh thought for a little. How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine. Pooh nodded. I promise, he said. Still with his eyes on the world, Christopher Robin put out a hand and felt for Pooh's paw. Pooh, said Christopher Robin earnestly, if I... Uh, if I'm not quite... Uh, he stopped and tried again. Pooh, whatever happens, you will understand, won't you? Understand what? Oh, nothing. He laughed and jumped to his feet. Come on. Where? said Pooh. Anywhere, said Christopher Robin. So they went off together. But wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. A. A. Milne This Day in History Great job on that, Greg. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu to find all their great online courses. Greg, one, one insight that maybe wasn't there that you were thinking about as you listen. Um, well, just to uh, go on about the, the distinction between what most people know in terms of the Disney characters and, and what A.A. A. Milne created. Uh, what I really enjoy about A.A. A. Milne and you don't have in the Disney characters is that there's a, a distinction between intellectuals and common man. And, and in A.A. You know, a. Milne's books, Pooh, Piglet, and Tigger represent just a common man, not thoughtful people. And you have the owl, rabbit, and Eeyore. They're sad people, but they're intellectuals. And the ones who aren't the intellectuals, they have joy and happiness. And they're the characters that most everyone likes. But that is lost in the Disney characters. 
And that's still, Greg, a great point that exists today, the difference between PhDs, some might say the elites and ordinary folks, but particularly intellectual, the intellectual class and ordinary working folks. And that distinction still, wow, it's still around today. And by the way, we urge you, get Winnie the Pooh, get the actual audio recordings. These books were not meant to be read any more than Shakespeare was meant to be read. They are meant to be heard. They are meant to be performed. A.A. Milne, born on this day in history in 1882, we leave with Kenny Loggins' great song about one of his favorite characters. This is Our American Stories. Christopher Robin and I walked along under branches lit up by the moon Posing our questions to Owl and our days disappeared all too soon But I've wandered much further today than I should And I can't seem to find my way back to the wood So help me if you can I've got to get back to the house at the corner by one You'd be surprised there's so much to be done Count all the bees in the hive Chase all the clouds from the sky Back to the days of Christopher Bond 